0: This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions.
1: The stakes are really high for our children now. I mean, if you look at the data in credit card solicitations that they get in college, That we are mortgaging our children's futures
0: if we do not help them understand money. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batniwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. My guest today is Sarah Harden, the CEO of Hello Sunshine, a media brand anchored in storytelling with a mission to change the narrative for women. She leads Hello Sunshine alongside its founder, the actress and producer, Reese Witherspoon. Sarah also holds an MBA from Harvard Business School. And funnily enough, Sarah and I both grew up in Australia and attended the same school, Geelong Grammar School, but we didn't meet until we had both moved to Los Angeles. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. It's so nice to be with you. What an amazing journey you've had in the past few months. You recently sold Hello Sunshine for a record-breaking $900 million. How did this all start? Well, nearly
1: six years or five and a half years ago, Reese came, I was running a venture called Otter Media where we were investing in building next generation media brands. And these were brands that It wasn't VC style investing. We would partner with different brands and take majority stakes and help grow and build them. Brands like Crunchyroll, for example, a global anime brand. And Reese came to meet with us and she had a pretty fully formed idea for Hello Sunshine. And she clearly has had a decades-long career and very successful as an actress and then a producer. And I think what she saw was, as a producer, the transformation that was happening in the media landscape, the conversation she was having on social and... An opportunity to build and expand storytelling that centered women, and so she came and met. And I sort of think the rest is history at some level. Like we met, and I think alongside that, we've been building these brands, as I mentioned. A lot of them were pretty male-focused around comedy, gaming, anime, and separately over the over the prior two or three years, had been thinking there's room for a premium storytelling that's for women. But it's hard to start media companies from a standing start for a lot of reasons, and. When I met Reese, and she had this idea, we thought that's it. And it wasn't a standing start. You had Reese's track record, her social footprint, her position was, you know, I think that can really accelerate us in terms of how we build that company. And that's what happened. And I actually invested in her on behalf of Otter, and we started to build a company, and hire the exec team, and I think of myself as the world's most involved board member. and I think we had the experience of working together and one thing led to another and we were actually in the process of selling Otto which Reese wasn't aware of the time but the timing really worked out and I stepped in as the full-time CEO and you know we've been building since then.
0: You've mentioned that the business model was originally centered around Reese's book club and you've also mentioned that you've had an incredible love of reading and books Since you were young. So I guess the trajectory of the two of them coming together, I think, is is really interesting. But how did the book club translate into this media empire?
1: When we set out to build Hello Sunshine, it was really about how do we send us women's stories in everything we do? But across the storytelling formats where women are spending their time, clearly premium film and television, which Reese had an incredible track record made sense to get started but also how do we tell stories on social and in podcast and in others and how do we architect and build a company that's sort of set for the media trends of the next 10 years and not the ones we left so it was sort of the rise of streaming and that we thought that would be very beneficial and so we saw what was happening there so the first executive we hired was our scripted tv executive and then the other thing was we wanted to build a media brand not a production company we have premium production studios at the center of our company but What that meant, that decision was, we had a driving belief that we also had to take responsibility for audiences showing up. And so as you build out these media lines of business, building out your direct-to-consumer presence is critical. And so how do we do that really authentically? Reese's Book Club, Reese was already posting photos of books to Instagram, we knew that our model where we had some advantage was in adapting books for television and film. You know, Reese had done Gone Girl and Wild and big little, she just was starting to go into the big little lies. So she had a track record of doing that. And so the two things we started on scripted, and then we started a Reese's book club social handle that we na- we put stickers on the books and we said, let's pick a book at the first week of every month and really tentpole that. And let's build that together in a way that I think was very strategic and supported, each supported the other.
0: So you're now a Hollywood power broker. How do you think your Aussie background has shaped you in the way you conduct business out here? You know, it certainly I think shows up in the values of the
1: company that Reese and I share. And I think a lot of conversations early on about that. I mean, one of our values is we talk about being world-class DIYers and We say, you know, we're capable of pitching $100 million TV shows, but we also unstack the dishwasher, right? I think there's an egalitarianness to that, a work ethic that I think we do the work, we talk about it, you do the work. And at the end of the day, in an early stage company, when you're building, you're only ever as good as the work that you're (laughs) you're doing. So I think that sits underneath it and just being very intentional and thoughtful about the culture and values. And I'd say early on, there's a lot with Southern values. I think where, you know, Reese raised in the South for a lot of her, there's a lot of an overlap, I think, between Australian values and certain Southern values as well and Southern US. So I think that definitely reflects it. And yeah, I think there's just a work ethic that our team really shares.
0: I've heard you talk about the way you are very fiscally responsible about running your company making sure you're working on projects that actually make a profit before you move on. And apparently this is unusual in Hollywood. So can you explain that?
1: Well, I don't know if it's like unusual in Hollywood. When I came to the US, I came for business school, you know, 20 years ago. And when I graduated from business school, I actually started a company with a couple of guys from my class and from MIT. And we moved to Silicon Valley and we raised money. And I remember having this light bulb moment a couple of years into that was the heyday of the dot com boom. Lots of venture capital and people used to say like You know, how big's your company? And everyone used to say at the time, well, I have 75 employees or I have a 100. And I remember thinking, that's a really weird proxy for a company of how big it is, because what it really is is just a measure of how much money you're spending. And one of the things I've always focused on, thought about, what currencies do you measure yourself by? And I think it's very easy, especially in early stage companies, to pay attention to currencies that don't actually matter to your financial success. And they can be, in this case, it was, you know, in the, Late '90s, early 2000s in Silicon Valley was how many people you had. Like, why is that a measure of success? I think in Hollywood, press releases, walking red carpets in the tech sector, like people announcing products way before they've like vaporware. And so, one of our ethos we talk about is just less talk, more action, and really paying attention and being very focused on how do we think about or talk about our business success and. It links back to our mission, right? When we talk about changing the narrative for women, right, it starts with representation in media, but it's actually grounded authorship. This is all a conversation about women's power in the world. And we only get in companies to continue to build and exercise power if we're doing it in really financially responsible ways. So early on it was we've got to be really thoughtful about how we deploy capital, trying to get to profitability as quickly as we could. It wasn't about like, let's go. And that's another measure of success in early stage companies. Like we raised another $50 million, right? Which is just a measure of how much you're spending to grow the company. And in many companies, that's the right way to do it. You've got to raise a lot of capital and have a race to scale. But, you know, we were very intentional and thoughtful about the financial profile of the company we needed to build. And I think some of the right decisions we made in the first two years was just the sequencing of how we spent money and making sure that we did it really, really responsibly.
0: So you're in the storytelling business and you're also in the business of finance, but this episode today is about your money story. So how did you learn your basic values about money and what were the most important lessons that you learned from a young age?
1: I grew up in Australia and I think of a lot of formative you know, my parents were divorced when I was probably 11 or 12. And we lived with our mom, we, great relationship with our dad. We saw our dad a lot, but, you know, my mom was one of seven. When I think of her parents raising seven children, I think she just had a very healthy relationship with work and money that she relayed to us. Right. And I think then with my parents divorcing, she was very transparent about money with my, my twin brother and I are the eldest. And I think in some cases it was explaining why we could and couldn't do things. I also think the experience of she had been a nurse in her early career when she had twins. She stopped working for a while and then when she divorced, she had to go back to work. And I think that experience of having to rebuild financial independence was something she talked about very much with us and with me. But it's like this is a mom who I remember sitting when I was probably 14, 15, sat down and said, Here's our annual budget for the next 12 months. I want to show it to you guys, right? And my brother and I rolling our eyes, going, you know, but it was about here's what I get from your, here's what I make, here's what I get from your dad in maintenance. Here's when we go away for our week's holiday, like this is what I'm spending. And, you know, having that sense of like, wow, I remember learning about taxes for the first time, like so much, you could get so much paid in, like that seemed weird. So she was very transparent and, I think the other thing was from when we were 14, 15, if we wanted money, then we had jobs, right? So I worked in a store on the weekends, I worked as a waitress, I was a babysitter. And I think that was she made us open a building society account when we were 14, 15. We put our money into it. And so, you know, I was very fortunate. I had incredible education that both our dad and our mum really heavily supported. But I think she's had a very healthy relationship with money. She was not extravagant about things, but I felt like we had a great life and we had great experiences and she just was very transparent and it wasn't a taboo topic for her. She's like, oh no, you got, we got to talk about this. And I think as a girl, right, I was the only girl. I think she was also very conscious of like, you know, she used to say to me, you've got to build financial independence. And I think the experience of getting divorced really colored that.
0: Fascinating. And and you mentioned so many things there that I think are helpful to all of us, you know, understanding why you couldn't, couldn't do things. I mean, that sort of flows into the way you are so fiscally responsible now and can't help feel that that's not an accident. And also you, you mentioned your age. And I wonder if some of us also thinking about that might think, well, is 14 too young, but it's not too young. And it's a very formative age for children to understand these important topics.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I remember being six and seven years old. I'm, I look back and am like, how did my parents, how did she let us do that? My brother and I used to make popcorn and we lived near a beach. And then we used to go down and like sell the popcorn, but you know, we'd come back. So my mom used to say, if we made $10, she would go and say, well, the popcorn kernels cost 99 cents and the bags cost a dollar. So I funded that. So you guys don't get to keep that. I mean, literally, I, I learned about cost of good soul" right? When I was like seven, firstly, I'm like, how did she? My brother has to do it by ourselves, right? I mean, this was Australia in the seventies, I guess. I look back and I used to be just like, oh God, she's really mean, right? But I think some of it's a gift. And I will say, I had a very privileged lifestyle growing up you know, I had an incredible, wonderful middle-class upbringing too. I mean, there wasn't a lot of extravagances from her, but I think at the transparency and I think she just talked about it. Right. And I think that's half of it. And I think just being in conversation about money and equally with your daughters, as well as your sons. Right. I think that was really, really, really key.
0: Why do you think then that many women are not comfortable managing their money? To me, a lot of this stems from childhood norms and childhood understanding of what money is and isn't about, what is talked about money in the home, and what can we do to help our girls take responsibility for their own finances? I
1: think there's a lot of unintentional signalling to our children of decades of baked in sort of bias around girls and boys. And I think that's being undone, right? Like everything from the genderization of our world to pink toys and what we play with. And so talking to girls about spending and your don't buy the Starbucks and you're talking to boys and young men about investing, right? Like, I mean, why is the experience when we talk about women and financial responsibility all about like not buying your Starbucks? I think that starts in the earliest, the way we treat boys and girls differently, and I see that changing, right? I think the second thing is around, you know, there was always a sense like it's gauche to talk about money. And at the end of the day, what it really is is a conversation about values, and I think through that lens is what do you value? And, I mean, I introduced and I've had to come back to it with my own children an allowance in a way that was really a conversation around signalling around what we value as a family, right? But it's also the practising of money management. And that started when my kids were like six and seven and goes through to today. My daughter's 18. But I think there's a lot of cultural stuff and gender stuff that is decades old. But I do think that's shifting. And so part of it is not just how we talk to children, but making sure we talk to girls in the same way as boys. assuming. We have to assume the way we talk to girls they're as good with money and math and information about it as we make that genderized assumption about boys right like there's nothing innately more likely that a boy is interested in stocks and investing as a girl like where did that come from? so I still think there's a lot of patterning that we're doing on that and then I think the other thing is I do think women there has been this mystery around money sometimes and this Women's assumption, like, I'm not comfortable with it. It's not how I was raised. And it's so complicated. And so I want to give up my power. Then actually, when you kind of demystify it, it's just things you need to learn. It's just learning the way we learn anything. And so, providing those opportunities to learn and ask questions, whether as a teenager or if you didn't have that learning in your teenage years or your 20s or 30s, of coming back into it and doing in ways that are fundamentally kind of interesting to you as well. So I think there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't happened. And if if it didn't happen for you and you have a chance to like help that education with your children, it can start very simply, right? A lot of it is just having the conversation. And I think having it sometimes through the lens of like, it's not about about how much money you have and how much money you make. You know, it's a life skill. I mean, it's the same life skill that you We teach our children a lot of things, whether riding a bike or those rites of passage we take our children for. It's such a critical life skill. And the only last thing I'd say is the stakes are really high for our children now. I mean, if you look at the data in credit card solicitations that they get in college, that we are mortgaging our children's futures if we do not help them understand money and the difference between credit and earning and spending and taxes because you really have to have that literacy to function as an adult and make sure you don't get into into deep trouble.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned your daughter's 18. Presumably college is something that is potentially on the horizon. There's a whole national conversation around college debt, another potential trap that we need to be teaching our children. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And there's so much there. And then just being, I think, being really clear with our children upfront about what those trade-offs are, and what we can and can't do to support them and where they are. But you know the I think even prior to that, I think the sort of ages of six to eighteen, I think there's just a lot of very simple things we can do to instill a good healthy relationship with money.
0: Yeah, and you also mentioned goals and math, and I hope on another day we can come back and talk about that, but that's an issue that starts very early in yeah. terms of encouraging goals in that direction. So you mentioned your children. How are you specifically preparing your own children? I know you're having these conversations. Are you helping them learn about things like investing equally, the boys and the girls?
1: The one thing we did was when we started an allowance, I mean, I did some work in this sector and I was in my 20s and 30s. So I read a lot about healthy ways, not tying allowance to chores, I think is really critical. Like my children have to do things just to be part of the family and they don't get paid for that. And allowance is a tool for money management. So they get the allowance, whether they've been good or bad, or doing it on a monthly basis. We set up up front. Like I did it with my kids' ages generally. And then as I got a bit older, I sort of increased it a little bit. But we were very clear if they got $10 a month, I generally do it monthly because I think it's they have to plan better if it's monthly. We had three columns. It's, it was actually three physical jars when they were younger so they could see it where... $4 went into spending, $4 went into saving and $2 went into giving and so the spending stuff they could spend it however they wanted generally saving they had to get to a certain goal it might be $30 right and then they could spend it on something bigger that they wanted and say, you know saving was like twice a year if they had $30 in there it was like what do you want to give this to you have to research and is it an animal shelter is it something you had to give that away and so again that values of delay gratification and i think working really hard to know, It was very tempting as a parent to not use it as a tool for discipline, being very clear. The allowance was a tool for understanding what it meant to have money. So if you go to the supermarket, right, when they're like seven and they're like, can I get a chopper chopper? I'd be, I'd be like, used to have it on my phone. I'd say, well, you've got $4 in your spending. So if you want a lollipop, sure. Then they would go, oh, actually, I don't really want it if I have to take it out of my own money half the time. Right. So, I think an allowance and the key shift, I think, is seeing it as a tool to teach your kids about spending, saving, giving. And I think that's been key. And my husband, I give him credit for this as our children got a little older, probably ages of 10 or 12, and we would struggle to think about what to get them for Christmas one year. My husband asked all three of our kids to like research a stock and then we bought them a stockage. I mean, it's funny. My savviest on this realized that you could only buy a share of stock. So he got a a stock that was about $400 a share, where the other one was a stock that was like $80, (laughs) $80 a share. And then we've added to that. And so they have tracked. And I will say one of my kids is, I mean, I'm not recommending this, but one of my boys was really into like PC gaming and Minecraft. And so he bought his stock. I won't say which company, but in a big tech company that is in gaming. And so linked to their interests and he had to like validate. And then since then, they'll come to my husband and, and I, and we talk about like how the stock is going. They pay attention to what those companies are crying. This is like five or six years later. And they probably have each got four or five shares in different stocks. Again, that question of like, what is a stock and what does it do? And that's been really interesting. And then you know, when you get to 18, obviously having a daughter with her own bank account, she just got a checkbook. She just turned 18. So she has her own checking account and that thing of like a lot of visibility about money. I mean, I think when your kids are younger, actually providing physical visibility. So it's tangible. I think one of the problems of our world with Apple Pay on your phone and it's like, it doesn't feel real. Right. So I think the more about having piggy banks that are physical and they can see the money. And then when it gets to a point teaching about interest, rate, right, you put it in a savings account and it goes up and literally having that written down too. So it's not, just, it's not just in theory. But most of it's just part of the conversation, I think, as much as anything else. You know, my husband and I were trying to make the decision to buy or lease a car. And that's an interesting conversation to bring your kids into, right? Like what does that mean and, and what are the trade-offs around that and how do you think about it?
0: Yeah, all excellent tips. And, and I'm hearing over and over again, it's not too young to involve your children in many of these conversations.
1: Yeah, it's fun when they're young too. They're yeah. so fantastical, right? You're like, yeah. how much do you think a house is, right? And they're like, $5. I'm like, well, it's the same as five lollipops. Like, oh, that's interesting. I mean, they're so, they're just, I mean, it's fun. I don't think it's too young in an age-appropriate way.
0: Yes, of course, of yeah. course. Is there anything you wish you knew when you were younger that, that you know now? You
1: know, I went through my whole high school and I was an English lit major. I loved the humanities. You know, I did physics and chem, but they weren't my best subjects. And I had this narrative that I wasn't good at math. And I was a pretty solid math student, but I was a really strong humanities student, right? And I did English and politics in college. I then went to BCG, a management consulting firm, and I really had to like, I mean, it was terrifying. I had full imposter syndrome, right? I then got accepted to Harvard Business School, but I had to do, I got accepted with a contingency that because I'd never done any accounting. Although I'd worked at BCG, I'd built like Excel skills, I got good at finance, but I I really had to like build it. And what I wish I'd known, right, was, and once I learned it, I was like, oh, the sort of finance skills that are applicable in business and in life, it's not the same as algebra, right? Or geometric equations, right? There's a lot of logic to it. You've got to have a high EQ to ask the right questions. Like it took me a long time. And now I say, like, I am a unbelievably financially savvy. But I think I had to talk myself out of a couple of decades. I had to unlearn. I imbued that part of the world and business with a lot more mystery than it actually is, right? Or that it actually, like, it's just learning. And a lot of what makes you good with numbers and other is not the putting things mechanically on the page, or it's actually all of the judgments around. It draws on all of my humanity skills, right? And being able to synthesize a lot of information and understand how it means to show up in a financial things. And, and you know, I went to business school and I was really lucky. I then learned the difference between cash and revenue and what that means and some pretty fundamental finance concepts. But it's not that complicated. It's just knowledge you have to acquire.
0: Yeah. Well, I would love to come back sometime and talk about imposter syndrome and goals yeah. and math. Sarah Harden, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. No, you too, Marina. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and at bankingongirls.com.